Well, epiphany. What comes to mind when you hear that word epiphany? Maybe nothing at all. It's not a terribly common word. Maybe you think of aha moments, realizations, discoveries, maybe historic and famous ones, like Isaac Newton sitting under an apple tree, and he sees an apple fall, and he thinks of gravity. Or maybe you've had your own less important epiphanies. I came across a Huffington Post article not long ago titled, Eight Epiphanies Everyone Should Have. I'm sure you're curious, so I'll offer you a few. Plan B is often better than plan A. Okay? You're not that number on your bathroom scale. Okay? Your work will never be all done. You don't have to find your purpose. It'll find you. Epiphanies, right? No, not really. Maybe you've had uh, Christmas epiphanies over the years where uh, you came to a realization that eggnog's actually pretty good and it doesn't taste like paint. Or, or that giving gifts is actually more fun than getting gifts. Or if you have a church background, at least in certain traditions, when you hear the word epiphany, you might think of January 6th. In certain traditions, that's on the church calendar as the celebration of the wise men arriving and seeing the baby king and giving him worship. They had an epiphany, a a realization. It was revealed to them, and they responded. Now, the Bible doesn't use that word epiphany in the story of the wise men coming to baby Jesus. That's church history where we attach that word to that event. But the Bible does use that word epiphany in other places regarding Jesus' appearing. That's how it's usually translated in the English Bible, appearing. But the Greek word is epiphania. It's an epiphany, an appearing. In a passage like Titus chapter 2, epiphany or appearing is used regarding Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Now, would you turn there? If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Titus 2. If you don't have a Bible with you and you've got a smartphone, you can Google Titus 2 and it will come up. Google knows about the Bible. Get there. If you would, look at a Bible if you have one handy. Because what I'm going to say to you over the next 28 minutes or so uh, is really none of my own ideas. And this is what we do as a church. This is what Christians do, if you're not familiar. Christians get together, they sing songs about truth, they pray to Jesus, and they open the Bible, and they talk about it together, that they might learn more about God, and might learn better to walk in his ways. So that's what we're doing this morning. It's Christmas Eve, and it's also Sunday, and this is what we do. This passage, Titus 2, teaches us, about the two appearings of Christ, the epiphanies, and how to live in light of them. Four verses, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you see the two appearings? Verse 11 says grace has appeared. Verse 13 refers to the appearing of glory. God's grace has appeared in the past. God's glory will appear in the future. And both of these center on one person. Let's start there as we consider these verses on four different levels. Number one, God's grace is a person. It's a person. God's grace has appeared. It showed up. It's physical. It's historical. It's bodily. This is referring, of course, to Jesus and his coming. God's grace is what appeared when Jesus showed up. Salvation is what came, according to verse 11. He's a a savior if we back up to verse 10. Now, there's a lot that's being assumed in language like savior, salvation, and God's grace. What's being assumed is why we would need grace at all. Why we would need, or what we would need saving from. Paul's writing to Titus, a pastor in a town called Crete. And Titus has been a right-hand man with the Apostle Paul for some years. He knows that Titus knows what we need saving from or why we need grace. But surely not everyone in this room knows that. So let me not assume it. Let me just tell you. According to the Bible, you and I need God's grace and salvation because we were born sinners. We were not innately good until bad society got a hold of us or bad kids on the playground. We were born going against God and his ways. That'd be one way of defining sin. Sin is going against God and his ways in our words, our thoughts, our actions, or even our affections. It's making ourselves out to be little gods of our own little universes. Now, sure, some sinners are nicer than other sinners. Not all are as bad at sinning as some are. Some sins are more culturally acceptable than others. But categorically, the human race is one of sinners, and sin is sin. Our sins are many. Our sins are diverse. Our sins are seemingly unstoppable and certainly unfixable, at least by ourselves. And so we're in trouble. The problem is cosmic and eternal. We're in trouble, so we need saving. We need a savior, not tinkering, not fixing, not improvement, not 12 steps. We need a savior. We need God's grace. Now, we'll get more specific than that in just a bit. But for now, just notice that that grace is in a person. And God gave that person. For thousands of years before Jesus came, it was simply a promise. There's going to be one to come, and he's going to be the answer. He's going to be the fix. He's going to be the king, the savior. All that 
As early as Genesis 3, three chapters into this big book, we get the first promise of this one to come. That from the seed of the woman is going to come someone who crushes the head of the serpent Satan. You read on and you hear of Abraham's sons and God giving great promise to them and specifically one seed or son in particular. You read on and you read of a, a ruler that's going to come from the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You read on and you, you read that there's going to be a prophet who comes, a prophet like Moses, but even better. You read on and you find out that King David is going to have a son with an eternal throne. And this son of David is also David's Lord, if you can comprehend that. We read on and we, we hear of a suffering servant who's going to pay for the sins of God's people. On and on it goes, and they all funnel in to Christ. For a, a long time, for thousands and thousands of years, these, way, the, these promises were on hold or in waiting. At times, God would raise up a, a temporary savior or a temporary king, and he would be a foreshadow of the true one and the permanent one to come. And God was merciful to provide these temporary saviors or kings like King David, but then he would also prove that this isn't the one. It's not the final one. God would then show us a, a failure in this man, or simply a good guy would die and leaving a, a great vacuum behind. And so the wait would continue and continue and continue. And we're, especially at Christmas time, supposed to feel the weight of that waiting that God's people did for so long. We've been thinking about waiting together at this Christmas season. We started a couple weeks back in a sermon series we're calling Waiting for the King. And a couple weeks back, we looked at two people in the Bible who are perfect examples of waiting, and they are also those who had their waiting come to an end. They saw the Christ. Simeon in Luke 2, he, he'd been waiting for consolation, and God told him through an angel, you won't die until you see the one, the consolation that's coming. And he saw Christ that day at the temple, and he said, God, you can take me home. I'm done. That's it. Mission accomplished. Anna also at the temple that day saw the Christ and then went about telling anyone she could that the Christ had come. She told it to anyone and everyone who were waiting for redemption like they were. Well, that's what our passage is talking about in Titus 2. When the grace of God appeared, but not just that day at the temple, not just in his infancy, it's talking about the whole of the Christ and all that he is and all that he did. His birth and his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And even in the Bible, the Word of God, every Christian can come to see this same Christ in all that he is, in all that he did. Back 2,000 years ago, there were some who actually got to see the physical body of Christ. He touched them. Sometimes they touched him they got to see the Christ. They got to actually apprehend. To them, he literally appeared. 
Today, we have to apprehend him through the eyes of faith in the pages of a book. God has preserved history and the revelation of his Savior in this book. And so there we can see the grace of God appear. We, we need an epiphany. We need an awakening, a realization, and an encounter with the Savior. Now, some people have discovered the face of Christ on tortillas. This is a common thing in New Mexico. There are a lot of Catholics. There are a lot of tortillas. You burn your tortilla. Sometimes it looks like Jesus. Well, that's not the kind of encounter we're talking about. It's not that kind of mystical, weird, maybe if I hold my Bible in this direction, I can see his face. No, no, no. With the eyes of faith, with print on the page, we can see the Christ. We can see him appear, as it were, off the page. So this is what we do at Christmas. We apprehend him. We acknowledge that he has appeared in history and we seek for him to, in a sense, reappear throughout our lives with increasing clarity and increasing depth and weight. He's a person. Secondly, God's grace is a payment. It's not enough that Jesus appeared for us, but verse 14 says, he gave himself for us to redeem us. To redeem us means to rescue us, to, to pay for us, to buy us out of slavery and bondage. And the cost of that was nothing less than himself. That's what it says. He gave himself. That's his life. This is referring to the cross. On the cross, Jesus wasn't just giving his followers an example for how to deal with really fierce enemies. Here's how you turn the cheek. No, he was dying in our place. In my place condemned he stood, we sometimes sing. He was paying the guilt for all those who would ever believe. That's what the cross is all about. That's why Christians love it. That's why Christians use it as a, a symbol for all of their faith. It's because Christ was their payment and their sins are forgiven. 1 Peter 3 says that Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We're the unjust ones. He's the just one. He bore our sins and injustices that we might be righteous. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says, that, that he who knew no sin, he didn't do any sin, he bore our sin, he became sin as it were, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Or if we read on, look at chapter 3 of Titus. Here's another summary statement of what we've come to believe and even experience if we're Christians. Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, epiphany, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and removal, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or forgiven or saved or redeemed by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Have you ever had an epiphany about these matters we speak of today? In some ways, the epiphany of Christ is his public historic coming. And it already happened, but it has to get personal. There's the revelation of who he is, but there needs to be a personal realization of who he is. Has he appeared to you? He's appeared in history whether you think so or not, or like it or not. But has he appeared to you from the pages of Scripture? And, and do these truths make sense to you? You begin to apprehend what the Bible says about the problem and God's solution in Christ and what you must do to receive it. It couldn't be any clearer in Titus 3.5. It's not by works. It's not by earning. It's not by striving that we get this mercy. The nature of mercy is that it's a gift. Grace is a gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something you work towards. There was a payment. Do you believe that payment was for you? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? I pray you would. I pray this Christmas season you would. If you would come to know that, then you would join all other Christians in this experience of looking back to the cross, to the whole life, cross and death and resurrection of Jesus as this future shaping reality. I think we're all looking back to something or some things in our lives that, that was pivotal it was a redirection. Whether you're religious or not, you, you, might, you might have gotten into a certain college and you say, that's a fork in the road. Or you may have gotten a, a promotion at a certain time and you say, that was a game changer for my career. Or, or you may have broken off an engagement with a girl you didn't really want to marry and you married a different girl and you're glad you married her and not her. And you look back with some fondness that God led you down this path and not that path. So as you drive down the road of life and you look back in the rearview mirror of life and history, what stands out to you? What was pivotal, pivotal and monumental? Maybe you'd say, nothing really. Maybe you don't have any need for the rearview mirror. It's just all out there, just taking the speed bumps and the sharp turns as they come. But for the Christian, this is what stands out in the rearview mirror among everything else that's in our past. The Son of God came. The answer has come. He died for sins. He's ransomed us. We are now his. We've encountered him. We have the answer, not because we're so smart, not because we're good at discovering things, but because he's revealed himself to us. He appeared to us, and things will never be the same. The past is powerful.
Thirdly, we should consider how God's grace purifies. It purifies. You see in verse 14, we talked about that word redeem already. Redeem from what? He, he redeems us from all lawlessness, being a, a law unto ourselves. We, we decide what we do, not him. He, no, he rescues us from that kind of futile, empty life. And he purifies his people. Jesus came to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, the Bible talks about a Christian's purity in two different ways. One, you could say, is their position before God. And another is what's practical or what gets worked out. One is about their salvation, and another one is about their ongoing transformation. The first of those, salvation, isn't received by working for it or earning it. We've already established that. Titus 3, 5 couldn't be clearer. It's always grace. It's always mercy. But that grace and mercy has transforming effects. It shapes us and it molds us to be a people who want to represent God well to the world and want to love what he loves and to do what he, do, what, do what he does. That's what godliness is, by the way. It's not just rule obeying or sin avoiding. Godliness is being godlike in all the ways that human beings were made to be like God. We were made in his image. This is part of the fix. The fix is not just a get out of free jail card. It's transformation. He, he's making us his people. And we see that more and more. Not perfectly. Not all at once. Don't misunderstand. But God's people are being changed. Their behavior is being redirected. And it's the grace of God that is redirecting them. Notice verse 11 talks about the grace of God and salvation. And then verse 12, it says, this is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's not that grace gets us in the front door, but then grit is the name of the game inside the house. Grace gets us in the door. And grace shows us how to live in that home. It teaches us. It trains us. It transforms us. It changes us from the inside out. Here's a test to see if this is true of you. In your mind's eye, go to the cross of Christ that night he was crucified. Imagine being there. We sometimes sing an old hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Imagine being there. Imagine seeing the, the agony and the pain and knowing what's behind it. The love, the care, the sacrifice for sins, the victory. Gaze upon that and ask yourself, what do you want to do next? The Christian doesn't say, well, Jesus died. Where can I now go sin greatly? And the Christian doesn't see a crucified Savior and then look to muddy his name. No, the cross has left this imprint upon him or her. 
It presses down a shadow upon them, and they're changed by it. Grace actually changes them. Grace imprints upon them. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Grace has a purifying effect. Christian, our present approach to life, to living to priorities and aims and goals is powerfully shaped by the past. Not just who your parents were or what happened in the past in your life, but far beyond that is Jesus, his coming, the cross, his resurrection. That shapes us and directs us, at least it should, more than anything else. Maybe with exception, him coming again. So number four, God's glory will appear. Now notice that right in the middle of these four verses, like, like the meat that's in a burger, is verse 13. Verse 11 and 12 and verse 14 are dealing with similar things, the present and the past. These are the buns of this glorious burger. Verse 13 is the meat about the future. There's an epiphany still to come. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now it gets more rich. Our present life in living in priorities and aims are shaped by the past with the cross preeminent and our priorities and aims in living and dying. It's also in anticipation of the future with Jesus' coming as the thing that stands out the most. Now, it's probably true of all of us, whether you're religious or not, that you're shaped by the past in view of the future. You're living your life in, in this now moment, in view of the past, in view of the future. So I ask, what are you hoping for? What are you wanting? What are you longing for on the horizon of your life? What, what are you hoping in? Some of us can't see much beyond the front bumper of this car of life. Maybe the extent of your waiting is Christmas. It's tomorrow. It's a short wait. I know, kids, but it, it's, it seems long, I know, but, but it's short. Some are waiting for Christmas. Some are waiting for the holidays to be over. Some are waiting for 2017 to end. It's been a doozy of a year. Some are hoping that 2018 will be a banner year for their business. Well, these are noble things, but these are not our ultimate longings. These are the things that are lined along the way on our path to an eternity of either utter glory or horrible terror. When Jesus comes again, 
It will divide humanity. Not all will believe. And he will not force his mercy upon you. And you will pay for your sins. But what if you were made for more than just temporary fulfillment? You know, making sure Wednesday goes well. And Friday is somewhat fun. Or that next year is a big year. What if you were made to long for something so great, so grand, that it couldn't be squeezed into this era, this age, this life, this time, this world? What if God has put within us desires that actually aren't meant to be squelched or tamed, but actually enlarged and expanded so much so that the fulfillment of them couldn't fit in this world, in this age. What if you were made for another world and you thought you've been trying to make this one your home and struggling to figure out why it's so hard and why you're so restless? Well, I believe God has made us for himself. He's made us to long for him. Sin leads us astray. Jesus will bring us back. And we don't have immediate, full, 100% fulfillment when we become a Christian. But we know when that is coming, there is a day coming. Some people ask and wonder why Christians don't think more about Jesus' return. And some have answered, well, at least us in the West, we're too comfortable. Our suffering isn't actually that, that great. Now, whatever you're going through, I don't want to minimize it. It might be great. But as a people, as a culture, in 21st century America, most of us don't talk much about heaven because we simply don't need it. We're trying to get heaven now. We're trying to get a little bit of heaven tomorrow. You can have your, le- your, your best life now, according to some. Well, those who experience slavery in our country back a couple hundred years ago. They had it so hard, they just kept singing songs about heaven. Where else could they look? They just kept thinking about heaven. And that was enough. One day, we will see the Savior. One day, we will no longer see him with the eyes of faith on pages in print, but we will see him, we will behold him in all of his glory. The glory, as it says in verse 13, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. On that day, it will either be the greatest day you've ever had up to that point, or it will be the worst day you've ever had up to that point. Again, Jesus' coming divides history. And it also divides humanity. It will be an epiphany for all of us, one way or another. People these days talk about not wanting to be on the wrong side of history. And that can be debated whether this position or that position will, in the end, prove to be on the wrong side of history based on someone's perception. But I tell you what is infinitely more important than being on the wrong side of history, whatever that means. It's being on the wrong side of God. I hope you hear the grace and mercy 
and welcoming invitation that's made to you in these pages that we read about today. I hope you know it as your own. I hope, Christian, that if you've experienced this kind of mercy and these grand promises, that you will experience a whole new life now, in a sense. You see, with this kind of past that looks back to the birth and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and with this kind of future where his glory is revealed and all things are fixed and the curse is vanquished and Satan's defeated and sin is no more, well, that gives great power and perspective on tomorrow and the next day. It actually allows us to lead otherworldly lives knowing what's to come. Let's pray for God's help to believe it. Father, many of us have difficulties, pains, worries, doubts, struggles. We ask for your help to believe your word and to walk in light of Jesus' first epiphany and the second epiphany. Lord, we pray for those who are with us who haven't yet come to believe any of this. Perhaps today you would give faith, you'd open eyes to see. Perhaps they would come to not only know of their forgiveness and your transforming power, but would also begin to long for Jesus to return because they've begun to love the Savior who said he would come. Help us, Lord, to believe these things and to rejoice in these things even now as we sing of his coming. I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.